Hey everybody, you're listening to Dead Ideas, the podcast of extinct thoughts and practices. Each episode explores an idea once believed to be true, but no longer. We explore each dead idea in all its glorious eccentricity. And uh, Nick, remind us, what, what's the idea that we're talking about this series? We are talking about miasma, the bad air theory of disease. Exactly, the miasma theory of disease. We're on part two of our series. And the idea that disease, and in particular plague, comes from mutated air called miasma. And last time we went deep into this idea, which was popular throughout Western history up until the 19th century, but we focused in particular on late Renaissance Italy in the plague year of 1630. Uh, So check out part one for that. This time we are going to look at some court cases from the region of Florence that give us some little snippets, uh, peeping Tom views of what life was like in a plague-stricken region of the late Renaissance. And some of these are pretty interesting, so we're going to have some fun today. So uh, crack open a brew, sit back, uh, let's talk about the miasma theory of disease. Check your neighbor's armpits for buboes. That's a skin tag. <laughs> Is that what you're doing? That's a skin tag. Are you sure? I'm pretty are sure. Are you sure? It hasn't gotten bigger. I, I don't need to put a chicken on it. Okay, thanks for listening everybody. I'm BT Newberg, but you can call me Brandon. Uh, The music we just heard was composed by Rachel Westhoff, my lovely wife, who thankfully just bailed me out of jail for violating plague quarantine so that I can record this podcast. Thank you, Rachel. Uh, you don't want to be in jail in the late Renaissance Italy, I don't think. Generally avoidable. Yeah, you know. don't drop the soap. But 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 not for the reason you're thinking. It's probably because it's more because it's going to fall, fall into a pile of shit, <laughs> as we learned from last episode. There was a lot of dung around everywhere. Uh, okay, so with me... <laughs> He's put contaminated! <laughs> He's put him outside! The the, put him in the lazaretti! <laughs> Uh-oh. Oh, that was our one of our co-hosts for the day. That was Nick. Hello, Nick. It's very important that everyone knows what my sneezes sound like. <laughs> yes. okay, and our, our other co-host for the day, Anna. Who just looked it up. Apparently Gary Busey is not in Speed, or Speed 2, but I thought he was, probably because of the miasmas. Let it be said that we are nothing if not accurate on this podcast. Uh, glad to have you guys back on the show again. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for the beer. Indeed. Uh, speaking of which, let's do our fake plug. We always like to do a fake plug for a local uh, microbrew. Mm-hmm. Um, today, what are we drinking? We've got... Angry Planet Pale Ale. Yes, uh, from Flat Earth Brewing in St. Paul, Minnesota. So, yeah, it's local. Yeah, it's, what do you think? It's a Pretty nice good? can. Didn't we just... Wasn't that just a real plug? That was a real plug. We don't get any money, <clears throat> so okay. no. That's the key point. All right. And I'm sure that Flat Earth's lawyers would like you all to know we don't get any money from this. <laughs> so it's not a real plug. All right. So last time we did our homework. Guys, now it's playtime. We've, we've earned our right. Wait, we've did earned... you say playtime or plague time? <laughs> playtime. Oh. It's also plague time, though. Um, we're kicking back in my Minneapolis apartment. We're sick of sipping on our local brews. Okay. So it's story time. So we've got a number of snippets here from court cases from the plague year of 1630, again from the region of Tuscany, which is where the city of Florence is. And all these are excerpts from Julia Calvi's book, Histories of a Plague Year, 
which gives a whole lot more than we can possibly get into, so check that out. Um, these excerpts give just little vignettes of what life was like in this these plague-stricken times. Um, so we can play Peeping Tom into this sort of 17th century Florence, and they don't necessarily overtly reference the miasma theory of disease, although we can speculate on how it might have colored some of the events that we're going to hear about here. Um, and some of them don't even directly reference the plague, even, um, but they just show the tension, the kind of tensions that erupt during a plague time. Um, and finally, some of them, frustratingly, even lack a sort of satisfying <clears throat> ending, because they are from real life, and real life isn't really, you know, written for the screen. Um, but we can make up, we'll make up endings. Can we put <laughs> we'll, Gary Busey in them? We'll put Gary Busey in Good. them. And we'll end them all in the same way that the movie Speed did. <laughs> okay. Uh... So, yeah, so we're going to have some fun. All right, so let's get to it. So, Nick and Anna, uh, I've got a number of uh, snippets picked out from this book. Wee! And I'm going to let you guys choose uh, which ones that you want to hear first. So here are the choices. <clears throat> okay, so the first story is Paranoia. Yeah! Okay. The second possibility is A Daring Escape. Ooh. Mm. Mm -hmm. Number three, the indecent barber. Well, so <laughs> yeah. that, that that usage of the term of the phrase uh, "peeping tom" it's uh, uh, mm? was very deliberate, huh? Mm -hmm. good, good to know. Okay, number four, what dogs leave behind? <laughs> <laughs> Things that cause miasmas. <laughs> this Jeopardy board is really weird. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what dogs leave behind for three hundred, please? <laughs> What is shit for... <laughs> what is shit? <laughs> Suck it, Trebek. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, number five. I think we're at five. A hospital chop shop. Ooh. Mm -hmm. Wait, so they just, they steal like horses and then repaint them and reassemble them? And I then... don't know. We'll find out. And the last one, hiding the plague. So which one would you like to hear first? Dang. Uh... I'm voting for the barber. Oh, yeah, Indecent Barber sounds good. Um, Indecent Barber? Yeah. Okay. All right. This one's just a tiny little snippet, actually. This is probably one of the shortest ones. <clears throat> okay, let's see here. All right, so these are all from, like, Renaissance, late Renaissance Italy, right? From Tuscany, right? And these are court cases. So um, somewhere or another, there's something that the somehow the authorities found out about this, and then it's recorded in the official record of this plague here. That's where this is all coming from. Okay. Okay. And Calvi does some summarizing and also does some quoting. I think this one is mostly, like, summarizing, but it's still coming pretty much straight from the source. Okay, so Calvi says, In the quarters assigned to them, barber surgeons were under a double control. And if you remember from last episode, the barber surgeon was the one who both cuts hair and does surgery and is kind of the working class healer, as opposed to the physician that Anna was last time. Who has a bird um, mask. <laughs> who has a bird mask and who is more of the academic and, and theoretical kind of high-status, um, white-collar doctor. I'm actually not even sure the physician would have the bird mask. They're coming into a lot more direct contact. In, in, I'm, I'm, I'm in, my, in this continuity, if I get to have a role, I have a bird mask. <laughs> She's declaring it. She has a bird That's mask. That's how it works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Historically, no. In this instance, yes. Okay. So, in the quarters assigned to them, barber surgeons were under a double control. First, they were directed by noblemen who, assigned to the same neighborhood, 
kept track of the sick, the suspect, and the healthy, and made sure that the sanitary personnel performed their duties. Second, they were supervised by medics and herbalists who were legally required to accompany them on visits to patients. Okay, so their barbers um, were accompanied legally with these other people. Hmm. Uh, Vittorio Gheri, a barber surgeon in the quarter of San Ambrogio, however, often visited patients by himself. <gasps> yes. You can see where this is going, That's right? That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> Uh, he especially liked to call on women who were left at home alone. Oh, wait, it is actually going there. It is yeah, actually nice. going there, yes. <laughs> on 17 November, for example, Vittorio went to a house on Via Maria. He usually paid a very brief visit there, keeping, of course, a safe distance. Uh, in quotes here, I told her to stay at the top of the stairs and undress. Uh, stated the report, ordering the woman's hospitalization at San Miniato. After doing his duty there, and and the undress part... <laughs> okay, hold on there. Hold, hold on there, guys. The undress part, right? That's actually not... That's, that, no, it's, it's certainly that medically necessary. Sense because, no, it's... Yeah, because the buboes often happened in, like, armpits, and sure. no, especially it, the groin area. So it's actually sense. part of the profession. There's I nothing think it was suspect- just did his yeah. duty that got us to snicker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I get, no, I got that. Yeah. It's a sex joke! <laughs> After doing his duty there, the barber surgeon went to attend to the wife of Paolo Antonio, the launderer. I, I would love to be a launderer. I don't know, it just sounds... Actually, it sounds pretty bad. Yeah, I'm guessing yeah. if, if especially when, conditions. Yeah, especially yeah. when we were talking about last time how the peasants would seep their linens in stagnant water. That's exactly what I was remembering. Although yeah. Dryer sheets are probably good for keeping the damn bad air out. Mm-hmm. Point, yeah. Bounce. Yeah. <laughs> Bounce. Yeah. Now with 20% less plague. <laughs> <laughs> Gets rid of static clean. <laughs> and flubos. And sticky miasma. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Same thing. <laughs> yeah. Gets rid of miasma clean. Okay. Um, so she, she too, was alone in the house. According to her denunciation, which I assume is her testimony, um, Vittorio apparently put his hands on her breasts. Then he embraced her, asking, Do you want to have sex? <laughs> uh, just straight out. Just yeah. like, eh. Like, you want to do it? <laughs> so we're really low budget plague porn here. Yeah, I don't think they're they didn't hire a scriptwriter yeah. for this. Yeah, no, the the soundtrack is just some guy with a little piccolo off the sides. <laughs> Lighting is terrible. That's your late Renaissance porn music with a piccolo. Mm-hmm. Could it at least be something a little larger to represent? Maybe the... a hurdy gurdy. <laughs> Crank it. <laughs> Uh, The woman resisted, saying, I'm going to tell my husband, and then managed to escape his advances. Uh, The chancellor made assurances that measures would be taken against the barber surgeon, yet once again the story comes to no conclusion. The charge was too unimportant to bother firing one of the magistrates, the magistracy's necessary employees. Uh... So because it's... Because he's actually doing a vital service, he's sort of protected, so he's getting a little predatory. Yeah, or, yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's some of that, or maybe it's just a smokescreen that, like, hey, yeah, we're living in male-dominated Renaissance Italy, dude, it's cool. Well, yeah, 
Yeah, but if you go after somebody's wife, that's probably, by those standards, kind of like a form of theft. Or... Yeah, that's true. Uh, I mean, it's all cool the... when the barber goes with the herbalist. And yeah. They... Well, he... yeah, because the herbalist is good at holding up the lighting. Yeah. <laughs> but this was the wife of a launderer, so probably not a yeah, super the, high the staff family. Yeah, the going to care. Yeah, it's yeah. Like... Yeah, so so a little snippet, little snippet into uh, the life of this, these times. Uh, okay, so that that was the indecent barber. Um, now, do you want to hear paranoia, mm-hmm. a daring escape? What was that? I'm paranoia? always down for paranoia. Down for paranoia. Okay, let's In go. In this with... room where you've blocked out all the light and muffled <laughs> the sound. Right. Okay, let's go to, to paranoia. Chairs. So let the listeners know we are not actually tied to the chairs. Everything else is true. Yeah, it's, it's, it's duct tape, so it's not really... Don't tell everybody that we're in a dungeon. <sighs> okay, all right, back to the story. Okay, I've entitled this Paranoia, but actually Calvi entitles this The Poisoner of the Holy Water. Ooh. Yes. Okay, so this is from uh, the town of Volterra, 31st of August, 1630. As it was rumored that a certain foreigner had poisoned the holy water of the city's piles. As they do. Mm-hmm. The six deputies request... Never trust foreigners with your water, folks. <laughs> Wait, the piles? Yeah, I didn't... I think it may... <laughs> I didn't look it up, but it might be, like, the holy fonts. Oh. I, I'm thinking. I don't know. We should look so it up. So not piles in the sense of what we no. were... Okay. No, not, peel, <laughs> not piles of, of manure. Okay. Yeah. Um, Okay, so as it was rumored that a certain foreigner had poisoned the holy water of the city's piles, the six de- deputies requested the Bargello guard to assist him immediately. According to those rumors, this foreigner had poisoned the holy water of the cathedral and of other churches. He had been discovered carrying a sack of soil with his majesty's seal, hmm. alum of burned rocks, hmm. pilaster, um, and two small pots of broken glass. And I get—I gather from later in the story that maybe the pots are made of glass and they're broken, rather than carrying broken glass, okay. I think. Uh, this sounds more like a vampire hunter. I i like this story, set up to this story, because it's kind of like one of those riddles where, like, there's a puddle of water and a chair, <laughs> and, you know, it's like you have to figure out how and yeah. right. what happened. Yeah, okay. There had been vegetable oil in one of the pots. So, yeah, so the pots can't be broken glass, I guess. So, anyway, it was the first time that the terrible charge had been articulated so clearly. The terrible charge of uh, poisoning, spreading the plague through poisoning water, Mm -hmm. which is a common paranoia back then. Sure. Um, It was the first time that this terrible charge had been articulated so clearly. He was a plague spreader and was thereby indicted. On 4 September... The magistrate of Volterra questioned Gianelli. I guess that's this guy's name, Gianelli. And now here, this is actually a direct quote here. I am named Bastiano di Girolamo Gianelli, and I come from Borgo Abugiano, which is now my favorite place name in the world. Borgo Abugiano. I come from Buca de Feppa. That's where I was going. Sorry. (laughs) Do you know how it works here? I come from Borgo Abugiano in the valley of Nivoli. I'm a shoemaker. I left Borgo on 19th of August, and I have no other family save my mother. She's 61 years old and a beggar. After leaving, I stayed in Caneto for one day to sell some goods that I had previously bought in Lucca and Pescia. 
They were mostly needles, agora, and lace. With the money I made, I bought some knives. After selling the knives, I bought a shirt and some other clothes. I was arrested next to the church wall by the security forces of the Bargello Guard. I don't know why. They found my pilaster from Ripomorance, which was for toothaches. Hmm. So here he starts to explain what, what he's doing with all this stuff, right? I still had some vegetable oil from Volterra and some soil from Empoli. I also had some alum, which I used as water to clean ice. What? Yeah. What? That's what it says. Where are they getting the ice from at this time? I'm not sure. Yeah. Dirty ice. Yeah. Well, to be fair, if you're not freezing it yourself, it might well be. I don't know how you freeze it. Yeah. I suppose maybe it came from the Alps. Probably. Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. If like, yeah. you get yeah. it from a glacier somewhere. A glacier. But Tuscany isn't that nearby. But you can preserve ice fairly well. If you have enough of if it. You, yeah. If you have yeah. enough of insulation. it and if you have insulation like yeah. sawdust. This is not so answering know. anything. <laughs> yeah, no, he's just explaining like how, like what he's doing here and, and how he got all these weird items. Um, the soil, I was told, was good for curing fevers, and I sold it. I came to Volterra last Friday, 30th of August, from San Gimignano, and I spent the night there before leaving the following Saturday morning. When I arrived in Volterra, I spent some time in the main square, but only sold nine pieces of agora. And I'm not sure what agora is. Uh, then I took all my things and went to the Duomo, where I recited the Pater Noster and the Ave Maria. Duomo is Italian for cathedral. To Thank you. As soon as I entered the cathedral, I passed through a large door and took some holy water from the pile. That's what makes me think it's the font. That's the font. Yeah, that yeah. seems... Yeah. Yep. I kept going and left by the same door. So that's his that's his alibi, basically. Mm. And that's the end of, of the direct quote here. So he's a drifter, essentially. Yeah, he's like a drifter, and, he, and he's uh, selling things, he, trading, trading things. Clean your eyes but, for you. Yeah, yeah, on a really super small-scale kind peddler. of... Peddler. Yeah. Oh, peddler, yeah. 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 Okay. Um, so Calvi then continues, uh, The magistrate insisted that Bastiano was lying. The court knew that he had been seen loitering in the Duomo, and that he had discussed the many items which he carried with him. I did spend some time near the confessional, Bastiano admitted, and laid my bag there. The magistrate remained dissatisfied. Bastiano had to specify precisely why he had come to Volterra and what he had wanted to do in the church. I didn't want to do anything, Bastiano asserted, and the items that I had were for profit alone. So that, that's why all his alibi about these items is so important, because he lied him by the, in the church, next to the holy water, and mm -hmm. uh, what did it have something to do with poisoning? Yeah, all of that, right? Mm -hmm. um, yet the entire city believed that he had come to poison the holy water of Volterra. That is not true. It cannot be proven, he protested. I have never bothered anyone, nor has anyone bothered me. It is true that when I was sitting near the church, the police arrived and arrested me, screaming, You! Stop! I have been in Volterra once before. My name has always been Bastiano, and I do not know how to read or write. I only worked with Rosaccio for a few days as a handyman. I think Rosaccio must have been as a... Whatever you call uh, an apprentice's mentor. So that, that's, that's pretty much the whole snippet that we get there. So we don't actually find out what happened. 
This is one of those kind of frustrating things where there's not exactly an ending. Right, whether he's found guilty or not. Or what do you guys think? Well, it's interesting because um, we've been discussing the theory of miasma as air, as uh-huh. bad air, sticky atoms. Yeah. But here they're, they're sort of um, expounding on a theory that, you know, you can do something to the water that causes plague. And I'm wondering mm-hmm. if the idea is, I mean, poisoning wells is, is, a, is an old medieval idea. It's of, a well-known fact that foreigners do it. Well, you know, just yeah, what else it's you always do? those people. It's Friday night. You're they bored. probably have syphilis. Yeah, <laughs> necessarily. They have syphilis. And, but but it's, it's like, it's interesting sort of uh, in the context of we're doing something to the water to spread plague as opposed to the theory of stagnant air or sticky air causes plague, uh-huh. um, which does make me wonder... Do they think that you added something to the water which makes the air bad? Because well, there's that theory of, of, like you said, fresh water and uh, yeah. salt water. The thing about it. the miasma theory of disease, it was very vague mm. and not very well articulated. <clears throat> um, there were like all kinds of different things that could cause the mutated air. Any, everything from swampy water to astrological conjunctions. Mm-hmm. And... And stinks, odors, you know, and stuff. And so, and also, at that time, like, diseases weren't really very specific anyway. When you, when they, when they throw out a word like influenza, it didn't exactly mean what we think of as influenza. It was like any kind of respiratory kind of a something. More like how we use the term schizophrenia. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Like, there's all these different ki- specific disorders, and we just have this umbrella term like schizophrenia. Yeah. So that's what, like, diseases kind of were back then so it was a very fuzzy art back then it's just interesting seeing you know that actually recounted in in a in a story it's like disease comes from this disease comes from possibly this yeah you did something to the water yeah you did something to something that we ingested and now we're all sick yeah yeah in a cathedral sacrilege on top of it all i suspect that he probably wasn't guilty because otherwise we probably would have had an ending to the story Mm -hmm. they probably had to let him go I, I don't know. Or they just tortured him to death. It was late Renaissance Italy, after well, all. Yeah, probably he just expired in a dark place or something. <laughs> yeah, probably. They kicked him out and said, don't do that again. Yeah. Or, yeah. Okay, so that, syphilis with you. so that was the story Paranoia. So now we've got um, A Daring Escape, What Dogs Leave Behind, A Hospital Chop Shop, or Hiding the Plague. Ooh. I'm voting for dogs at the hospital myself. I like dogs. What yes, dogs do. leave behind? Okay, I'm warning you that this is this is... This was a more haunting story. Oh, not necessarily funny? Uh, well, we'll see. Uh, maybe. <laughs> pick up the beer or do I put it back down? <laughs> okay, so Calvi describes. Nothing could be worse, more despicable, or more unhappy than to die badly. Just as nothing could be happier, more familiar, or more human than to be buried in a church in one's own tomb with one's own relatives after a funeral and traditional ceremonies. This was the common wisdom of the time. You well, want it to be cheri- to buried in the church cemetery, right? Where all your relatives are buried. Uh, nothing was more senseless, uncommon, and cruel than to be buried in the fields outside of the city, which is where they buried the plague people, mm-hmm. often in mass graves and... Yeah, right. See Antigone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Stressing these values... Uh, Rigi uh, opposed them to those, uh, Socrates, the Cynic philosophers, who separated the idea of death from that of the territorial destination of the body confined to the tomb. 
So in other words, I think he's saying that like Socrates and the like didn't really care what happened to the body. It was more about like where your spirit was going. It could sound like a yeah. thing. But yeah. in contrast to that, they did care. Mm-hmm. They it mattered what happened to your body. And plague times was rough times for for what's going to happen to your body. Honorable death was particularly linked in social memory and in practice to the sepulcher, which was enclosed in the sacred perimeter of the church. In the goldsmith Orazio Vanni's will, mentioned above, existential and financial worries seemed to fade away only after the purchase of a family vault in Santa Maria Novella in front of the Riccasoli Chapel. The spatial coordinates with which Orazio defined his vault were identical to those he used to describe his shop, so that the house, the shop, and the vault assumed in the will of this rich bourgeois a similar sense of rootedness within a series of connected and defined spaces. How is this not in a Doctor Who episode? <laughs> it's very <laughs> academic prose. It's spatial coordinates. Yeah. So I want my vault to, to be a podcasting like <laughs> sound room. We buried Brandon. I want to be buried in a creeps. soundproof chamber. <laughs> the perfect silence <laughs> for all eternity. Who dares disturb the sound quality in my sepulcher? <laughs> that's right. That's when the Dungeon of Dragons Wraith pops up yeah. and you have to fight it. Because you disturbed the sound quality. <laughs> Did you let in the cat? I must destroy you. You're ruining my dead cast. Okay. As a result, the danger assumed the character of nomadism, of wandering, of what came from the outside. It was therefore no coincidence that the earliest trials of the summer, when the first rumors of the contagion began to spread, involved travelers and deserters. To be buried outside the city walls, far from the family vault or one's own church, meant exclusion from the texture of family and neighborhood life. Well, so is being dead, but... Well, no, it's not. That's the thing. (laughs) Actually, the whole point is being dead doesn't exclude you from that. In an urban culture deeply attentive to expressions of individualism, dishonorable death threatened the very possibility of deciphering bodies physically. Naked, mutilated by animals, victims of the elements, cast among thousands of other bodies piled up at random, the dead became unrecognizable even for their future resurrection. It's like everybody's just basically just tossed into a big mass grave, no individualized markings at all, just you can't tell one person from the other, maybe sometimes not even one body part from another. Well, okay, so that's all preamble to the little snippet here. On 6th of July, 1631, rumors began to spread that some infected cadavers, poorly buried, had been eaten by dogs. A dog that had been in the place where bodies had been buried brought the plague to a house, the name of which we do not know. However, the villa is called Campigna, five miles past Marati. This denunciation, sent to Florence by the public health officials of Marati, synthesized the whole horror of dishonorable death. The dead came back in pieces, left at front doors by the dogs who had devoured them. I brought you a bone. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You love me, right? I'm sharing. Can you imagine this? Let me roll on it. Yeah. Like your, your sister or your grandma gets carried away by the plague and back comes her little toe. With a dog that's waving his wagging his tail and just being like, for you, for you. Look, I found them. Look, it's good. They 
tastes good too. Oh, what a oh, oh I can't imagine it. They smell familiar and taste delicious. <laughs> oh, it's love. It's love. Why are you falling over? <laughs> so that's it for that one. So if a dog ate the body of someone who has had plague, mm-hmm. would the dog get plague? Well, the method of transmission Probably, is... but can the can a hmm. can a dog get well, plague? That's yeah, they can. Rats died of the plague. Did I they? mean, okay. yeah, they actually did. Okay. Um, in fact, I think, uh, don't quote me on this, but I think actually what usually coincided with um, plague dying down is when they killed off, when the fleas with the bacillus in them killed off a lot of the rats. Okay. I mean, obviously fleas can travel, but, right. you know, they are pretty much, I, th- I think, I'm, I'm again, I'm not positive, but I think it had a lot to do with when the rats finally died off. Hmm. Hmm. But don't quote me. This might need me more research. Okay. It could have we been can just put it in the show Casey. notes if we're wrong. Yeah. Right. Okay, so we've got a daring escape, a hospital chop shop, or hiding the plague left. Chop shop. Chop shop. A hospital chop shop? Okay. Most sanitary personnel worked in hospitals, lazarets, which were the quarantine stations, and convalescent homes, not only taking care of patients, but also staffing these institutions. They worked in supply rooms, kitchens, laundries, and disinfection rooms. These men and women were suspected of wrongdoing by the hospitalized who so charged them. So I think that's the context of this court case. So it's sort of like when your great aunt is in the nursing home and thinks that staff is stealing all her stuff. Like that, yeah. 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 Suspicions of that. Interesting. You survived to complain about it. Apparently, yeah. That's a good sign. That is a good sign. Okay. In a web of violence and reciprocal abuse, conflicts abounded within the walls of these institutions. Employees and guards against provisioners, buyers and cooks against nuns and friars. Most of these denunciations concerned thefts. Hospitals, lazarets, and clinics became magical theaters in which linens, cloths, blankets, and mattresses disappeared. Then, after they had been wrapped and passed from hand to hand, Along corridors and halls, and through windows, bars, and doors, they would suddenly reappear in the house of some corrupt woman. Hmm. I'm guessing that this is stuff that was going to be provided and then never actually came in contact with anybody who was sick. Because I'm not sure I would pay, even at reduced prices, for a mattress somebody had had plague on. Yeah, well, maybe, I mean, do you ask? And even if you do ask, are you given the truth? Well, I don't know. I'm a corrupt woman. What do I know? That's what I need to <laughs> Well, you are a corrupt woman. Right. Yes. And I've got a plague mattress. You want to check it out? <laughs> I'll address at the top of the stairs. L- lightly used plague mattresses for sale? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I hear your launderer is at work. Gently used. You don't have sex? <laughs> <laughs> is that a bubo? Are you happy to... Anyway. <laughs> All right. Internal... It's okay. We're married. Yeah. Or maybe that's worse. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Internal and external mediation and complicity were manifold. Furtive eyes watched and gossip and hearsay traced this endless movement of goods, this unquenchable thirst for material possessions. Unquenchable thirst for blankets? <laughs> I guess so. Well, it must have been some pretty nice blankets. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're going to snuff it. We may as well give you the good stuff. <laughs> A long account. The memory of the excesses committed by the officials of the convalescent home of Ruciano clearly delineates this web of complicities. In this document, the mail carrier Chacopo confessed to having participated in crimes, asserting that stolen blankets had been transformed 
in the hospital itself into clothes that could be traded in the city marketplace. Okay, so again, this so is there's like, the chop shop. This is weird right. because it's like there's this theory that you mentioned in the previous one where 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 some elements are considered carriers, like stuff uh-huh. like wool. Yeah. And then on the other hand, you have these people like going, yeah, sure, this isn't a plague hospital. It's been in contact with people with plague. Let's turn it into clothes and sell it to other people. <laughs> well, If they're unscrupulous enough to steal, they're probably also unscrupulous well, enough to sell. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, some, so some part of it might be unscrupulousness. Another part might be that that Fracastoro stuff might mm-hmm. have not really filtered down into the full population. It might just so be the academic physicians that know that about all that. In true. a hospital. Well, well, granted, I'm guessing it might be run by people who didn't have first Yeah, aid. we're talking about launderers and so. shit shovelers, not merely physicians. Well, it's still interesting seeing to, that this is coexisting in a general yeah. milieu of belief again. So, in the middle of the action was a storeroom worker, Paolo Landi who seduced and organized the nurses. The first co-conspirator was Domenica. She stole food and linens, re-sewing the material into other forms. Next, Lucrezia, the Pistoian servant who worked for Dr. Tedeschini, aided in the operation. Her naivety enabled Landi to seduce her with a promise to marry her. Landi's prime helper was Aurelia, the Rusciano Hospital superintendent. She also engaged in carnal relations with him. Dang. Together they ran a lucrative business based on trafficking in stolen goods. They took apart linens and made them into aprons and other clothes. Once they even secretly made a talisman out of some bed sheets. Hmm. A talisman? Yes. Like a holy... Protective thing you wear out of bed sheets. I guess. What was this? Was this like a ghost costume? (laughs) Halloween costume? I don't know. I don't know. Unflaggingly, Paolo and Aurelia used new sheets to make aprons, socks, and other things. They often went to the storerooms for a secret meal. Oh. You know what that means. All night sewing. (laughs) All night sewing. (laughs) Thus, they transformed the hospital into a small factory where stolen materials were diligently taken apart and sewn up again, turning out all kinds of garments. A sheet tied up with an apron was lowered from Aurelia's window to be taken to Lucrezia, an accomplice on Via Gora. From the same window, bread was thrown to the mail carrier below with the words that he should leave it in the hole behind the palace, which had been... Not that hole behind the palace. (laughs) 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 Sorry, tripping towns. (laughs) That he should leave it in the hole behind the palace, which had been specially prepared to hide the objects that were stolen each day. There you have it. The hospital chop shop. So eventually they figure out that this guy's banging half the ward, and <laughs> do they turn him in? Is that how he gets caught out? I don't, I don't know. I, it, again, it's established in the court documents, so presumably, yeah. Like, yeah, I mean, yeah, because it's... You do have the con- confession, it sounded like. So a bunch of scorned so. women basically realize, oh, he's promised to marry us all, huh? And, <laughs> wait a minute, I took vows to never marry... What am I getting at? Yeah, I bet, they, I bet they, like, turned tail on him real quick then. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. Uh, okay, so we got some time. So we still have a daring escape or hiding the plague. Ooh. 
Well, daring escapes are great, so maybe we should save that for the conclusion. Okay. I so yeah, hiding let's the plague. figure out how you hide some okay. plague. Okay, so we'll have a finale at the end. Yeah. Okay, so hiding the plague. <clears throat> this one is about a woman named Lizabetta. And interestingly, the whole thing here is a direct quote from her. Um, so actually getting her, her, her words directly. So Lizabetta says, I got a terrible fever and horrible headache on 29th of August of this year. Oh. Two days before the foreigner poisons the wells note. Wow, you are amazing. That's really good. Okay. Also my brother's birthday. Uh, you're just as amazing. Yes. Wow. I okay. assume him I assume getting sick has something to do with it. Yes. <laughs> okay. She says, I became so sick that I couldn't even get out of bed to go to the bathroom. That very day, I felt a great pain between my left leg and my body. Your left leg and your body. Like, yeah. yeah. So I think body is maybe a euphemism yeah. for yeah. Torso. Mm-hmm. She might keep her legs somewhere separate from her body. She yeah. might. Also recalling that the, the most common place for a plague bubo to show up is in your groin. Yeah. So, um, I told my husband about it, and we found a hard red swelling there. It hurt me more than having a baby. Ew. Yeah. Had she had a baby? Um, I'm not sure if that's clear from the story. We'll see. My husband, convinced that it was the plague, was very worried because I was four months pregnant. Which doesn't... I don't know if she had a baby before that, or if this is the first one. I don't know. He thought that if I went to the lazarette, I would never come back. So he said, Wife, I don't want you to go to the lazarette. I'll call the doctor, but don't tell him that you have a boobo. That way, he'll just treat you for the fever. So... Dr. Francesco Della Nave came to see me. He let some blood and prescribed some syrup. Although the fever diminished, the pain from the swelling worsened. My husband decided not to send me to the lazarette and instead gave me a bonnet that had been that had belonged to the Blessed Sister Domenica. So a bonnet seems to be like some kind of a holy bonnet. Maybe that's like like a talisman. Hmm. Maybe I don't maybe, know. Yeah. Maybe it's an obscure colloquialism for chicken. <laughs> for chicken from the cure for <laughs> that we heard last time. Yeah, on last episode. Um, also, the name Domenica comes up again, but I gather this is obviously not the one that was banging the other dude. Um, okay, so uh, yes. she might have been really blessed in a lot of unexpected ways. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, all right. So he said. Um, this must be your medicine. This is a husband now talking to Elisabetta. This must be your medicine, the bonnet. Place yourself in the hands of the Blessed Mother, because I don't know what else to do to save this house from ruin. Elisabetta says, Faithfully, I took it and put it around my neck. I would have thought so it's bono, not really a hat. Yeah, I would have thought a bonnet would go on your head. Yeah, that's peculiar. She said neck. Why wouldn't you tie it in that space between your body and your leg where the bubo is? Why? I don't I don't know. I gave I've myself over way. to the care of the blessed woman and asked her to cure me of the plague. I got more and more terrified because I heard that two women had died and that their bodies had been dumped in the fields. As you've already heard right. what a horrible fate that is. Finally, about 20 days later, the swelling went down and started to drain. The draining lasted for two months. Ah! 
Yeah. Two months. Oh, great. And you're pregnant. more and more pregnant. Yeah. 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 Then one day I noticed that something the size of my thumb was about to come out. Oh, brilliant. It was hard and the pain was so bad that I felt as if my insides were going to burst open. It continued to expel the liquid for more than one month. But today, thanks to God, I am totally healed. This miracle that cured me was due to the help of the Blessed Mother because I did not use any medicine except for the syrup the doctor gave me. He hadn't wanted to prescribe any medicine for me because I was pregnant. My husband also gave me an unguent, but I don't know what it was. Because the plague is so lethal, and because I kept it hidden, I should have died and infected my family. There are nine of us, and thanks to God so, yes, we are all still before. living. Wow, that makes it pretty impressive. You think that the so the nine includes other children of hers? I would imagine it could be her extended family, though. But it yeah, could, I, but I think, that, that seems like a big extended family. Yeah, to, yeah. Well, well, yeah. But I think, nevertheless, I think your supposition is probably the most likely. So yeah, it could certainly could go another way. She's but, probably yeah. delivered a kid, and it's like, yeah, this hurts. Yeah, this hurts worse. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, my husband Otavio was the only one who knew the whole story, but he dared not tell anyone about it because there are severe punishments for those who do not report cases of the disease. If your excellencies had not obliged me to report this miracle, I wouldn't have told anyone about it. This early treatment of Alien 4 was kind of weird. I could see why they didn't go with it. <laughs> you're, seeing, you're seeing the the plague bubo bursting out like the alien creature <laughs> out of the... Oh, man. From the movie Alien? <laughs> Oh, gross. What happened with the thing the size of a thumb? That's what I, I want to know. It's leaked liquid for a month. Yeah, we but it, it made sound like there was a hard part in there, like That might have been, like, the, yeah, the carbuncle thing. Yeah. What would that be? Would that just be, like, solidified pus, or... Like a calcium deposit of yeah. some kind? Or, I don't know what. But it might slowly liquefy over the course of... Oh, good point. Mm. Yeah, good stuff. It's like, you know, when you get sort of a grainy pimple, it can still be pus. Uh, and... It was getting and grosser by the minute. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. There's more beer, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Are you ready for the last story? Mm-hmm. Okay. So our grand finale for today is A Daring Escape. It's an escape by a guy named Belisario. Oh, nice. I love that name. Sounds right? like, yeah, Belisarius. Yeah, nice. What's that? Is that from something? Uh, well, uh, there was a famous Roman, well, Roman general of the Byzantine era um, under Justinian called Belisarius, and he was a pretty great general and was involved with the reconquest of Italy. Mm, so okay. I, I like the name. I also think feel like it might be related to, like, bellicose, which is, like, kind of, like, fiery-tempered and, yeah, yeah warlike. Well, and Bell is just... Yeah, Bellum. In that case, Bellicose is war, it literally means warlike. warlike. That's oh, okay. Bellum is yeah. Latin. Latin. Okay. Bella. Okay. Lugosi is so... dead. Sorry. Alright. Stop looking at me like that. Yes. Okay. So, a daring escape. Uh, so, Calvi has been relating uh, several uh, episodes about uh, travelers on their journey and says, Yet one last episode concerned a journey. In particular, the movements of a livestock trader and his shepherding family from the Apennines. The Apennines are mountains in Italy. It is a peculiar story because for the first time, the traveler avoided arrest and managed to escape. Apparently, it doesn't happen very often in Plague Italy. 
Um, not the protagonist, but his family offered the details on his journey. Actually, it's probably just that the doesn't make it into the court records if a person escapes. Sure. But in this case, the family offered testimony. Yeah. Yeah. So Belisario's family never left their home, their herd, or their village, but they talked about him after they made his escape possible. The story began in the summer on 12th of July, 1630 to be precise, in the village of Pieve di San Stefano. The soldiers of the Bargello Guard went to the house of Belisario, a livestock trader, and one of the Grand Duke's mounted soldiers. So he was a soldier. Reputedly a black marketeer, Ooh. he was engaged in criminal activities that carried the death penalty. Did he poison wow. wells? I don't, there's no indication of that. Um, but it does make me wonder what kind of black market we'd be talking about in plague times. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we, we heard about the hospital chop shop. And would that be black market stuff? Mm. I don't know. The livestock and, trader might be able to move stuff. And right. what what kind of goods would be in a special demand during plague times? Right. Imagine just just when you've got nothing coming in, right, because of quarantine and nothing right. going out. Like just something as simple as like soap or whatever it was that their equivalent of soap was would be like just a treasure. You know. Yeah, you would you'd be hoarding or trying to sell at inflated prices. Yeah. I guess aprons were in demand. Aprons were in demand. Um, so the armed soldiers arrived with the order for his arrest. In the yard facing the house, the soldiers of the Bargello Guard were confronted by Belisario himself carrying an arquebus. And an arquebus. Anybody want to explain what an arquebus is? If you've ever played D&D &D again. <laughs> 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 the most infamous thing in the player's handbook next to the man catcher and the glaive gizarm. <laughs> so an arquebus is a kind of firearm, right? It's an early form of the musket. Even more, even less accurate than the musket. And it does 1d4 plus 1 damage, but if you roll a 1, it blows up in your face. Am I remembering that correctly from the second edition? Something like that. Yes. Yeah. So it's, it's highly inaccurate. But the thing was, the thing was um, at that time, even though the guns were super inaccurate, that black powder charge would scare horses on a battlefield. And so you get a whole mass of them, and you could like break up a cavalry charge because the horses would get freaked out. Whoa! Yeah. Ha <laughs> ha ha! Yeah. Um, also, that's kind of why you see uh, you, you see depictions of old, like huge masses of riflemen just like r walking up to each other and shooting at each other. And you're like, why wouldn't you take cover? Well, it was because they were so inaccurate. You had to get as many gunmen as possible shooting all the same thing in order to hit anything. Right. So we phased out arrows. So it's for almost this. like police. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. Uh, okay, so anyway, uh, the soldiers of the Bargello Guard were confronted by Belisario himself carrying an arquebus and shouting, Who's there? A guard reported that Belisario then ran back into his house, and the guard says, My soldiers and I followed him. When I saw him going into the house, I yelled, Comrades, go watch the windows, and followed them. So this is like the Ruby Ridge of Baroque Italy. <laughs> <laughs> While trying to enter the house, the Bargello guards realized that the door was being held shut from the inside. Some women were trying with all of their strength to prevent them from opening the door. The mother resisted. This is now the guard speaking. The mother resisted, 
Hearing all the noise, the sister-in-law arrived, and she helped keep me out. But with my soldier's help, I finally got in. Belisario hit my dog in the face. No! Uh, no, no animals were actually harmed in the in the recording of this podcast episode. Let me just say that. Except that chicken. <laughs> we had to test it out. Yeah. Belisario hit my dog in the face and then escaped up a ladder. He reached the door on the second floor. I think opening... Mr. Fish's feelings were hurt by the closed door. Yeah, maybe. yeah, that's one animal. Yeah. Opening it, he saw a guard stationed outside. So he shot at the guard, who threw himself on the ground for protection. That is how Belisario managed to escape. Then Calvi goes on, Belisario was a dangerous man, a skilled soldier and armed. As the quick battle with the soldiers demonstrated, he was also prepared to kill. The entire family was duly arrested, and a gun found in their house was confiscated. From his relatives' testimonies, from the wall of diffidence and hostility which dragged the questioning into repetitions and silences, emerged the affection and admiration that everyone felt for this eldest son of the family. Always mounted, with an arquebus over his shoulder, Belisario was like a hero to his family. He went to the market of Maremma and the Mayfair of Montalcino to sell animals. His very absence, the fact that he had actually escaped, made him even more charismatic, as, as if surrounded by a halo of invulnerability. I'm hearing a John Williams track. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we'll leave it off there. But she, uh, there's too much to, to go on here, but it, it, there are some nice snippets. Like, they get a little bit of, like, what the women said when they were questioned. And they just, they totally exploited the fact that in their time and place, as women, they were held down. Because when they, when the guards asked him, like, well, didn't you hear anything? They'd just be like, I don't know, I'm just a dumb woman. Okay. Or, I don't know, I was sewing, I was making too much noise. I or, was menstruating. You know? <laughs> so, so, it was totally, like, wink, wink, they knew, right? But they were, like, making up excuses yeah. just based on, you know, I'm just a woman. I had to go do a lace yeah. thing. And then, the end of Belisario. Oh, uh, no. So, this would be the end of the movie here. Oh, no. um, apparently, he was, he was, you know... He was off, he had escaped, right? He was traveling in another city, traveling along the road, and then an assassin comes up and hits him in the head with a rock. Oh. And Dang. that's the end. That's it? And it doesn't say who sent the assassin or why. I don't think a police would have sent no. the assassin after the plague was done and everything. So I figure he must have pissed off someone else. He was a black marketeer after yeah. all. Hmm. So I'm thinking to weave this all together. Yeah. Belisario is the person who's banging all the chicks in the hospital. Oh, you think or under is, an assumed re, alias? Yeah. Was related to them. His black marketeering is in aprons. Eventually he <laughs> has to leave town after he's um Rumble. sort of yeah, rubbed off by the or chased out by the police. Uh -huh. He and his dog flee to another city where his dog digs up uh. the bones of people from the plague cemetery. Uh -huh. Well he himself trying to um under a clumsy alias Pretends he's peddling goods, uh -huh. hangs out in the church, and gets arrested for poisoning the well <laughs> in the neighboring town. Think of it, the timeline works out, because this was all in late July. Yeah. It happened in August. Wow. Hang on, hang on. I gotta get I this all on the whiteboard. You, yeah, yeah. We need we need to put up some like some some thumbtacks with strings attached between them. Yeah. Where does the this blue map figure? I think you have a very promising career as a conspiracy theorist, Nick. You're seeing patterns. So 
which ones didn't we put in? We've got the dog. Mm-hmm. We've got Belisario. Did we get the um, got fighting the, the plague? Yeah, what is that lady? Who was her husband? Maybe she was one of the nurses. Yeah. Oh, maybe she was. Uh-huh. Yeah. Maybe she got the plague from Belisario's dog. Or yeah. from Belisario. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the Black okay, Marketeer's disease. The Black Marketeer's <laughs> disease. Yep. Okay, well, we've got to bring this to the end. It's been a lot of fun. That's it for all this, for this episode, folks. Um, thanks, Nick and Anna, once again, for being on the show. It was a great time. Thank you so much. Thank you for bringing um, up Plague. Yeah. <laughs> remember, it's going to be a long, hot summer. If you go by swampy areas, keep incense in your artificial beaks. Yes. Necessarily. Also, the city would, would prefer that you do not keep your shit piled up in the alleys outside your house. Keep it in the horrible backyard. <laughs> keep it in the area between the houses where the rabbits run. Yes, but as we learned last episode, it can be a, a, a significant source of income um, if you have farmers living nearby. Dry so, it out, but yeah. make sure it's not the running kind. It, yeah, it should be the solid kind. <laughs> Until next episode, avoid mangoes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so everybody, if you like this series, let us know. Write us in. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Do you have a dead idea that you'd like us to explore? We want to hear it. I'm BT Newberg, and this is Dead Ideas. Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. Check out our website at deadideas.net for our latest portraits, and remember, yours could be next. We just posted one of Michael Tamayo as a 13th century Spanish knight of Santiago and one of Ryan Anderson's little daughter Evan as a 1930s American aviator with a strangely ahistorical rocket pack. (laughs) So check out that cutie pie rocketeer on our supporters page on our website. To get your portrait drawn, just leave an honest review pretty much anywhere iTunes, Stitcher, Facebook, whatever, we don't care, and then email us with what you want done. Simple as that. All right, we'll see you next week, everybody, for Public Domain Theater 3000, where we dive into a 1901 article about disease where the author still seems to have to argue against the miasma theory, even in 1901. And it also gives, um, how should I say this, a lot of interesting DIY methods for getting rid of insects on your property that you (laughs) probably should not try at home. Uh, So that promises to be fun. All right. See you next week, everybody.